Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because own. they are hard. Try to, try to, try to find my way home. My way home. In this episode, we talk foreign workforce culture with Tom Koretsky. Welcome back, everybody. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. I am very excited about our next guest. His name is Tom Caresti, and uh, we met a few years back. And if you've ever wanted to travel the world and run businesses and do uh, acquisitions and take over businesses and, and simply just bring your family around with you wherever you've gone to different countries— over the last decade, two decades, well, Tom is your guy because he was that guy. And uh, he has run businesses, acquired businesses, and lived in just about every city in the world. Some of them are his favorite and some of them aren't. We'll get into that. Maybe you can give us some of your travel tips as well, Tom, when this is all over. But I'm happy you're here, excited you're here, and welcome. Well, uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be part of this uh, clan here. And um, like you mentioned, I traveled all over the world and lived all over the world. And and I was the equivalent of Kyle in the armed services. I mean, he kind of went all over the world, solved problems for the United States of America and the the world. I went all over the world, solved business problems. I mean, you know, we, we were pretty much out on the front line. Uh, people were shooting at him. They were not shooting at me, thank God. But, but it's uh, it's challenges, and it, it was fun. I had a great. Um, well, heck, I, I left uh, the U.S. in '91, and I came back in 2005. So I had a nice run uh, living overseas in a bunch of different countries. Awesome. So as they say, um, or I, as I say, I've been on. Uh, I've either lived on work or, or worked in every continent except for Antarctica, and I don't want to be there, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're wondering, uh, we're recording this live in uh, downtown, beautiful San Diego today uh, at Tom's offices, Uh, but Tom did not grow up in San Diego with that accent. You are New York uh, through and through, correct? I'm a mismatch. Uh, I was born actually in Budapest, Mm. so I'm uh, by birth, I'm Hungarian, emigrated to New York in 68, uh, became naturalized when I was 18, and uh, grew up in the New York area. So a lot of values, I guess, came from the New York area because that's where I spent my teenage years and 
um, early 20s. So that's kind of stuck with me, including this uh, wonderful accent. <laughs> are you are you a Yankees fan? Yankees and Giants. Oh, man. Yankees and Giants. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. well I'm a, a Mets and Jets when I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Is that my, what, what part of New York were you from? City. What part? What uh, city? Queens. Queens, okay. Well, and you're not a Mets fan? Well, so the, the, the theory in New York is you're either a, an old school fan or an expansion fan. Mm-hmm. So if you're an old school fan, you root for the, the Yankees, the Giants, the Rangers, uh, and the Knicks. Yeah. Uh, if you're a, a, new, you know, a new guy, then you work, you know, the, then it's the Mets, the Jets, the, uh, uh, the Islanders or the Devils, and the Nets. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are the expansion teams that, that you root for. Oddly enough, my father-in-law had... Uh, 50 yard uh, yard line tickets for for the Jets. So just to, just to tell you how crazy football is now, right? When my wife was a kid, her and her mom used to go out to Hofstra University and made meatball heroes for Namath and Emerson Boomer and all those guys. Yeah. So while they were practicing, they would just show up with meatball heroes and give it to the guys. Oh, That's the way football used to be. You know, now it's oh. like, you, you got to buy tickets, you know, you got to go through security just to go see a practice. Yeah, you so meet the guys. Yeah, yeah. Nah, it's a very different world. And those guys are probably not eating meatball heroes right before a game either. <laughs> <laughs> well, the rivalry in the room has already kicked up. Uh, and as a, I'm a Reds fan, I grew up in Ohio. So uh, I'm a Bengals fan. So, you know, it's been, it's been, hey, I always remind people I'm a Bengals fan, but at least we've been to the Super Bowl two times in the last 20 years, 30 years. Some teams haven't. Um, looking on the bright side, okay, Tom, now that we've established that and got that out of the way, and, and if you're still here listening and you're not bored already because you're not a baseball fan, uh, we appreciate it. But, Tom, tell everybody, that was quite the introduction, and uh, it's fascinating, honestly. Tell everybody how you got into this line of work. How did you end up? traveling the world, living in every country, you know, moving your family around uh, after year after year. Uh, What did they think of it? What was it like? It's fascinating to hear the story of how people sort of put themselves in a position to do this. Because I know there are some people out there that find that lifestyle very attractive. Well, you know, I wish I could go to every country. Um, Those are usually the ones that haven't done it very long. Um, And so you sort of figure out the grind. But how did you get into that line of work? You touched on a couple of things, but one of the things, things you touched on is my family and my kids. So let me answer that one first. Um, my kids have a very different perspective in the United States than most of the kids growing up in the U.S. because they grew up outside the U.S. So a lot of things that kids in this country take for granted, um, they actually see because they lived in other parts of the world that it's a blessing to be lived, you know, to be living in the U.S. So they have a very different perspective on that. Um, whether, you know, they lived overseas when 9-11 happened, so they have a different perspective on 9-11 as well. Um, so they just, um, they're a lot more seasoned, a lot more matured because they lived outside. And then the other thing that happened with them, with kids, is, you know, kids are mean, right? So at every three years uh, in my life and in my kids' life, they were changing schools. So they got pumped into a new environment. And for a guy like me, it's easy because... Why I'm in that, the reason I'm in a new country because my work brought me there, right? So my world is kind of established around my work, so I'm plugged in immediately. Uh, Kathy, who's my wife, and my, my kids, well, they had to adapt, right? So um, my wife had to find, you know, my wife had to find some you know, new friends, although in the expat world, what you find is people are moving all over. So uh, within two or three moves, you come across somebody that you already lived with in a, in a past country. 
But the kids, um, to this day, you can plug them in anywhere because they they built that skill set, that social skill set that allowed them to adapt every three years and build new friends. And and to this day, they have friends from Latin America, from you know South, from from Africa, from from Italy. So so they have uh, Orient. They have friends from all over. Um, and you know you can plop them in. Like you look at Nicole, who's my middle daughter. She she moved uh, from New York to Northern California, to Southern California, to Nashville in Chicago. And each time she moved, she didn't know anybody. She just kind of plugged in and she adapted. So that's a skill set that they acquired just from us moving all over the other place, which was uh, which was pretty cool. I think I think they think it's cool stuff. <laughs> you know, it does teach skills. You know, you hear from the military families. And Kyle, you can speak to this. You saw a lot more of them than I ever did. You start to learn hey, I've got to adapt. How do I adapt to win? I have to start making friends quicker. I can't sort of quietly sit in the corner or life gets miserable quickly. So you start to maybe become more social. You start to get out. Some people don't always do that, but you start to develop skills that sort of help you and maybe even protect you a little bit from- Sure, you're forced to. And especially when your kids are growing up, they probably didn't have all of the technology that's afforded to the kids of today. And so that forces them to combat that boredom in a way that they uh, didn't. And I'm assuming that probably all of your children have a very unique perspective on when they interact and talk with their American friends compared to they're probably not as spoiled as their American friends might be. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're 100% right. It's, it's a little bit tough love. Um, but um, Look, you know, just schedule a future podcast with Nicole and Alex, and <laughs> we'll talk to them. I don't get their perspective. <laughs> this is great parenting. Don't I don't need to talk to them, but you talk to them first. It's gonna be a podcast, and we'll sort of. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay, so that's important. I think you know sometimes those uh, parts of the the world get glamorized, and you miss sort of how it impacts your family. Okay. And you know, you've got some great kids too. It's powerful. It's powerful to be an international businessman but also have a great relationship with your kids. That's powerful. So kudos, kudos to you. So, but the other question you had was, you know, how did, how, how did I end up where I ended up? Um, I think um, I, I, had, I heard John Maxwell say, but I think other folks had said it, it's called failing forward, right? Um, so continuously moving forward. Um, and then the other thing that I would kind of just mention is, um, Influence. So failing forward and influence. So let me just kind of elaborate on that. And, you know, how did I end up where I ended up? Um, I was always from, from the, from the time I was a kid, I was always a leader. And, um, I just always found myself in leadership positions. So for example, you know, rewind back to 68 when I ended up in a country, I didn't speak one word of English. Uh, I got stuck into a, a little, um, it was called the Queen of Martyrs. It was a Catholic elementary school. And um, in those days, everybody had to wear the little checkered ties and white shirts and, and uniforms. And, you know, I was, in those days, they didn't call it bullying, but bullying existed, right? So I was the new kid on the block. I was couldn't speak any English. So we're in the schoolyard and um, these three or four guys who, you know, quote unquote, bullied me, came over to the schoolyard and literally tied my tie in about six knots to the chain link fence 
right? So, so <laughs> I'm at school. Like this is my first week of school. I'm in, I'm in New York. I'm in the United States in this great country, and, and I'm like. I got the walk of shame because I'm stuck in a schoolyard. I can't come in after recess until a nun finally comes out and finds me look, looking for me and then, you know, basically cut my tie off and, and went into school. So, um, you're walking around the rest of the day. Yeah. yeah I was like, two inch tie. and everybody said, why don't you wear a clip on tie? Well, I didn't know clip on ties existed, but if I had one, that would have been a good time to use one. Um, but the reason I use that example is because you just fast forward a year and a half after that. So then by the time I was in the end of seventh grade, uh, those same guys were my wingmen. Right? So the same guys that beat me up, you know, through a number of, you know, different circumstances, I ended up being the leader of the pack. Right? Um, then when I was in, you know, high school, Captain of tennis team, MVP, student council. Same thing with uh, college. You know, I was captain, MVP, student council. So, and then when I got into the workforce, I was always in, you know, leadership positions. So, so leadership has been part of my blood always. Yeah. You know, and it, it's God ordained. Obviously, you know, it's stuff that you can work on to get better. Um, but it's been there. You know, when you kind of reflect on your life, it's it's been there f- forever. So then what do I mean by, you know, falling forward and influence? So what got me onto the, uh, to the expat world was um, I was working for this great guy. His name was Dr. Frank Morelli. Um, he was one of the best bosses I had to this day. I, I truly respect the guy. Uh, he was my boss at Colgate. And we were working on headquarters and corporate headquarters. And then um, we were putting together, a, a, you know, a, a progression plan of, of, you know, how I got my you know, future going in. And one of the things that we said was, look, we are going to make you present to four executive VPs over the next year. That was our plan. All right, that was my development plan. So, by the way, the first thing that we did was because if you spoke to me about, you know, 25 years ago, I would be going so fast you wouldn't understand what the heck I was saying because I was just like rattling words off. Plus, I had a heavy, thick accent. So... Frank said the first thing we're going to do before we even let you present to an executive VP is send you for speech lessons. So I spent uh, six months with this woman, Eileen Sinet, great woman, um, and she basically helped me with public speaking. So um, Frank held his word and and put me on teams that allowed me to present to four executive VPs. So um, right about that time is when the Iron Curtain came down. So like any multinational, Colgate, Palmolive had about 22,000 employees at the time. From 22,000 employees, four spoke Hungarian, right? Now, if I was born in Poland, I wouldn't be having this discussion with you right now because there was a lot of guys that spoke Polish, but only four guys spoke Hungarian. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Just, man, it's a good thing you weren't born in Yugoslavia. Yeah. Um, so again, failing forward, just basically, I just presented to Ford executive VPs. So not everybody in, in C-suite, in Colgate Palmolive, just heard Tom. So Frank set up a meeting with Ed Fields, who was in charge of the, uh, he was an executive VP. He was in charge of uh, developing markets or emerging markets or whatever. And so they had a meeting and they said, okay, we'll send Tom to set up Hungary. <laughs> so that's how I became an expat, just by... And you moved to, from Hungary when... How old were you when you moved here? I was 12. And how often had you been back prior to Well, that? I've 
prior to that, prior to getting the assignment, yeah. uh, probably about three or four times. Okay. I was like, they're like, he's our Hungarian expert. Yeah, you know, no, he, he was basically, I, the, the one thing I had going for me, well, two things I had going for me. One is just everybody met me. And, um, you know, obviously, if I was an idiot, they wouldn't have sent me just because of my linguistic skills. So, obviously, they saw something being on those project teams and, and presenting. And so, did they like. send you? Did you, like, take a team over or did they just give you a business class ticket, fly over to Hungary and say, hey, uh, let us know when things are turned around or uh, fixed up? So, so basically, um, it was total Greenfield. And um, I had a car. I had a cell phone, which was the size of my briefcase. <laughs> so that's what we started. I had to rent a car from Avis or Hertz, whatever, and a cell phone and, you know, had to, you know, find a lawyer, find a distributor. And, and literally in, in about three years, we had a $12 million company. Wow. Now, it's a, it was a little bit easier because, you know, Colgate products were well known throughout Europe, even over the Eastern Bloc. But there was still a you know dog like it works, and then we made an acquisition there. So, but you know from start from Greenfield to about you know three years, three and a half years in, went from zero to twelve and a half million. And what what year was that again? Nineteen ninety one. Wow, to put that in perspective, what's that equate right now? Quick, do the math. Well, it's uh, twenty with twenty nine years. Yeah. Boom! Um, <laughs> that was easy, Kyle. It's like one year, 1990 oh, to no, 2020. Oh, oh. Man, that's impressive! Wow, zero to twelve mil. How many? How many? Um, how many employees were uh, were on the team? So at at first it was uh, myself and um, three other guys. Uh, then as we build the infrastructure, uh, I would say the, um, the the management team uh, before we acquired a. Um, a manufacturing facility um, was probably about maybe 40, 45. And then once we acquired the manufacturing facility, then, you know, it got to be about 150 or 200. And I'm, I'm assuming the majority of them were all local. Everybody was local. Everybody. Wow. Yeah. So, Tom, uh, how did you, we understand sort of how you got to Hungary. You, you're just presented to leadership, uh, but how, and obviously it, you, it was the right time, right place. How did you get yourself into a position where so many people who spoke the language really well aren't presenting to the four leadership guys in the entire company? It's such a large company at that. Well, look, again, it's, it's, it's about influence, right? So um, leadership, they say leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Um, leaders influence others to, to follow their ideas, so it's, it's about how influential are you, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is leadership develops daily, not in one day. So that means you got to work on your skill set every single day. So that meant, all right, if it meant um, language lessons, well, that, that's six months of hard work in, in language lessons, right? Um, so everything um, that, you know, it, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens on you're working on your skill sets and, and becoming a better version of yourself every day. Um, tomorrow, I hope to be a better version of myself than I am today. Uh, if, if you don't work on yourself, it's not going to happen, right? Um, if, and by the way, before I could even present to those executive VPs, uh, I went through a couple of other presentations and I was like, Oh, you know, I don't know. That wasn't so. That wasn't so good. You know, and then all of a sudden, I went to a conference, and I forget where the conference once was, but this guy got up in front of a room, and he was at one of the keynotes, and he says, 
Well, I'm gonna answer three questions for you. What are we talking about? Why is it important to you? And how can you help? And his whole presentation followed that flow. I was like, well, that's pretty cool, you know? What are you talking about? Why is it important to me and, and how can I help? And most people are willing to help. So that's a format that I followed on presentations as I improved that skill set, right? So when you're in a room and you're presenting and you're commanding, then, you know, first of all, it's got to be clear what the heck you're talking about. Second, um, it's got to be relevant to the people in the room. And third, you have to give them a task, how they can help. So that's a skill set that I, I built, and it didn't take one presentation. It probably took maybe a dozen or more of, of being in meetings and, and presenting and getting people to influence and, and follow your sure. what you're trying to do. So just work on your skill set every day. And, you know, the day I'm six foot under is the day I stop working on my skill sets. I know you, and I know that to be true for sure. That's fascinating. I mean, we've all, and everybody out there listening, have sat through presentations where you're like, man, did you even practice this? This is the worst presentation. Are you literally trying to see how many words you can get on one slide at one time? Sure. Um, and so it's it's fascinating that you learn that, like work on the presentation, because so many speakers don't ask that question. You know, who are you, what are you talking about? Who are you talking to? And how can I help you? What are you here's your next step. Uh, and they kind of say, oh, I want to talk about everything all the time, and I want to just give you as much information as I can. There's no strategy or thought or goal put in mind because they're only thinking about what they want to say. They're not necessarily thinking about what the audience wants them to say or what the audience needs. And that's common. Um, by the way, in, in marketing and advertising, I'd like to give everybody here uh, the special Chris Mefford tip. When I build a presentation, I have one thought per slide. So what typically may take the average person a presentation of – 10 slides to do, I might have 40 slides. And I, I promise you my presentation is easier to digest. So here's my tip. Take a yellow sticky notepad, write one idea that you want to convey on each slide and stick it to the wall and then do the next one and do the next one and do the next one. Take a Sharpie and put it up there. And then make a slide for each, each sticky note. That's it. It's simple. Um, your presentation will be better. It's more concise. Get rid of all the clip art. Just use white backgrounds. I can't tell you how many people said, man, that's the best presentation I ever had. And it's just black words on a white background. It's real simple that people try to overcomplicate it. They use all these fancy templates. Uh, so avoid that. Or single picture. So I, I, I just want to go back one, one more step. One, one, one last question. One hey, I'll be asking the questions here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just you're talking about presentation, right? So when, when you look at that phase of my life on, on how I became, you know, a more masterful presenter over the years. The the last thing that I learned later on in my life, like, you know, I remember distinctly, I, I did a presentation for a thousand customers. So this was really cool. I was working for Philips at the time and we rented out the Museum of uh, um, Fine Arts. Uh, and we set up a stage. We had, you know, basically about a thousand people, uh, customers, spouses, employees and stuff. And I was presenting to them and, and it was... You know, I thought it was a good presentation because it was, you know, the what, why, and, and how. But it was all about business. And the one thing that I lacked that I that I learned later on was communicating through personal stories. And um, that that's something that I learned how to do much later in life. And I encourage everybody because there is a world of difference between informing somebody, communicating somebody, and connecting with somebody. And you're never going to connect with people unless you have personal stories. 
So um, just as a kind of a side note, that's that's a craft that that's that's part of the the presentation, you know, that that I kind of understood much later in life. Yeah, I mean, aim into that. Uh, there's so much goodness there. I mean, people could be glossed over and just totally bored, and you can make this one phrase. Let me tell you about this time I was in Africa. I was in Columbus. It was crazy. Everybody perks up. They want to hear the story. They want to hear the story. And, you know, that's part of the reason Kyle and I love doing these podcasts is it, it drew us to our interest. Uh, Tom, you know, our, our, we've shared sort of our, our book proposal with you, and you've, you've read it over, and our premise is leadership is overrated. Uh, if leadership is so great, why do people still hate their jobs? Why are so many companies still downvoted by overall culture and community and people don't like working there? If that's the case, and we've spent billions and billion dollars uh, in the business world trying to make better leaders. And we believe it's because they don't focus at all on the culture. And so the premise of that is if you can create this environment that's healthy, you can create better opportunities for leaders to be built, better opportunities for training to be done for those within your organization. Um, have you had an experience where you looked at someone and said, hey, I want to choose this person for this reason and help do for them what someone did for me? And how did you make that decision? Well, first, um, just the one, one comment on culture uh, and, you know, company culture. Um, if, if you don't consciously build a culture, you're going to have a default culture. You're going to have one. You're going to have one, whether you like it or not like it. You know, it could be a, a negative culture. It could be a toxic culture. Or it could be a, a very positive, you know, building culture. So you might as well spend the time and build it. And to me, the, the, a, a company culture is equivalent to a, an individual's character. In fact, if you have a startup, the company culture becomes the founder's character, right? Whatever that guy was. So... Um, it's extremely important to to have uh, a strong character for an individual and a strong culture for an organization. Now, the other question is, is look, I was just fortunate enough that over my career, I had, um, and there's basically three guys that I highly respect in business that I used to work for. And, um, and they're all poured into me. I don't know why, they just, you know, they saw something in me and they said, okay, uh, I'm willing to invest my time to mentor Tom. Um, and that's kind of the same um, approach that I took over my career to say, okay, well, you know, who are the people that I'm going to pour into and why? And who are the people that I'm going to mentor? And, you know, a lot of people used to work for me. Um, you know, at one time I had 2,500 employees. So from 2,500 employees, you know, who do you pick to mentor? And how do you mentor them? You know, Um so, um, you know, in each company, uh, at least at minimum, the people that were my direct reports who were in my C-suite, those people were all mentored. That was my responsibility for me to mentor them, right? Um, it was my responsibility to, you know, hire them and, and make sure I got the right team. Tom, um, do, do you think, do you think the, when, I want to go back to that a little bit, because when you said, uh, was it uh, Frank noticed you, do you think it was... What was it about your personality? Was it the no-quit attitude or was it really he probably saw in you, which I'm assuming is was your care factor, meaning like he saw, hey, Tom really cares. He's going to do whatever it takes because he really cares. So, um, you know, Frank actually put a little paragraph on, on my book. So I, I got three people to, to put a little, you know, 
in the back of the books, they put little quotations. Yeah. So Frank was one of them. Um, Frank said, I, I, you know, he, he described me one, a couple of different ways, but one quote that kind of sticks to my mind is, failure is not an option for Tom. No quit. Don't quit out of right? Um, yeah. so, so Frank was, um, he was into results. Yeah. And, and he saw in me that I was also into results. Um, and, and I wouldn't quit until we got those results. So th that's just one quote. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that's why Frank bought into me. But that's one way, you know, he described me at one time. I, I thought it was one of the two. I was batting 50, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, this is a good time to take a break because I, I got a couple of things I want to point out to the team here. One is uh, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know I try and work a tennis reference in at some point every single episode. Uh, Tom mentioned that he was captain of the tennis team, and I didn't say anything, right? I just kept flowing. But I feel like it's appropriate time now to, to let you know I was MVP of the tennis team in high school. I wasn't captain, but it's okay. I won more matches than it, captain. It it's cool, a, it probably than you. You're a good leader. High, it wasn't the high school team. You're a good leader. Maybe not a good winner, but it's fine. It wasn't the high school team for reference. It was a club team. <laughs> For a full a disclosure, going on here, huh? <laughs> full disclosure, Tom and I went out and played in Coronado a couple weeks ago, and he beat me. But <laughs> he's older. I was afraid for COVID for him. If he, uh, if he got, if I wore him down too much, a lot of excuses. You hey, took it easy on an old man, right? Uh, Second thing, we talked about all the, the kids sort of have this different perspective moving outside the United States. If you ever get the chance, uh, Camille Nanjiani. Uh, the comedian, he was in the movie The Big Sick and uh, some other stuff. He tells the most hilarious story when he moved here. He literally moved here. The day he arrived was Thanksgiving Day. And, and I think it was like New York. And he said, I arrived in America hearing all these amazing stories. And when I showed up, there was a parade down the streets. And I was like, do they do this? Do they do this every day in America? It's so good. Yeah, you got to watch it. It's so great. Uh, All right, Kyle, I've done a lot of talking. I, I want to go back. I want to go back to one thing that, that uh, I can't gloss over. So let's go back. Three years, 12 million, 150 employees. Obviously, it's a it's a foreign culture. It's a foreign environment uh, in terms of the workforce to you, but also obviously they're, they're your countrymen from long previous life. But uh, but at the same time, you were you up to that point had been in the workforce for how long before you went over? To um, well, like eighty to nine to eleven years. So so okay, so eleven years. You're getting into your methodologies. You're getting into how you're used to work happening, right? I'm assuming. And then you go over there, and now you're hiring an entirely foreign workforce. And just like any culture, they have their culture, right? What was some of the biggest challenges for you to, uh, to deal with as you were you know, onboarding individuals, as you're building this team, as you're growing this team in, in terms of their culture? So... Um so, so two, two thoughts. One is, um, if, if you looked at Europe, um, the, the, there was all people always spoke multiple languages, right? Yeah. And if you looked at um, the, the middle-aged folks in Europe, uh, the two languages they spoke were Hungarian and German. German was a prevailing language in, in, in Europe. Uh, if you looked at the next generation, the, the people that were just graduating from universities, they spoke fluent English. So... That was a prerequisite for working for a multinational called Kapamala if you have to speak English, right? So 
because of that language limitations, we ended up and hiring a lot of, of really young kids, you know, intelligent, highly educated. The, the one thing about Eastern Europe, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, Everybody, I've never met so many people with PhDs in my life when I moved to Hungary. Everybody had a PhD and then kind of figured out that the reason they had a PhD because due to the communist era, you, you couldn't kind of excel in work. So the way you got your social status is through, through education from academia. So everybody was walking around with PhDs. Nobody was really kind of doing anything with it, but there was really, so it was a very intelligent workforce. Um, so we got young folks that are maybe five years out of college, universities, um, highly educated, highly intelligent, and they spoke English. So because they were young, it was relatively easy to get those, um, you know, the, the culture into them, which, which kind of said, look, we work in this company, but, you know, we have integrity in what we do. We, we have a pride of sense of ownership in what we do, um, you know, teamwork. You know, all things that are bread and butter in American company, um, it was easy to build that because everybody was young. And then <laughs> to your question is, is when we bought that manufacturing facility, that was old school. Yeah. You know, those were, you know, the PhD folks with, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of experience. And I'll never forget, you know, after we started the integration of after the acquisition, we were all sitting around the round table and. The table was consumed of, or, or the, the, the table uh, consisted of people who were young, who were on a Colgate team, and people who were much older on a Fabulon team. Fabulon was the company that we bought. And we're trying to kind of digest how this integration is going to take place. And I remember looking at this one woman who was the manufacturing director, and um, and she was just silent. She was just, you could tell she wasn't buying into anything, you know. So I finally talked, you know, turned to her, I said, well, what do you think? we should do. <laughs> and her answer was, I don't know, you tell me, you're the boss. Mm. So zero accountability, zero ownership, just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Mm. And it's such a different clash of cultures where you had the young generation, they had the sense of ownership, they had the teamwork, they wanted to understand how they can help and come up with their own ideas, how to help us out. Look, you know, not one person at the table has the answers. They're probably energized. You know, but there's a lot of people that have yeah. the different answers and we'll go through all of them and, and figure it out. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. It's interesting. I've had women work for me that have had a similar, you tell me what to do. And when I call them in, I say, hey, what's the, what's the deal? And they've had so many chauvinist bosses that haven't given the freedom or the respect they deserve. And so they've just developed this defense mechanism with men in leadership, uh, some of them. Uh, that they're afraid to speak out. And I mean, I, we had a talk. I, I said, hey, you have 100% of the power. Uh, I'm here as part of an equal team, men and women. It's ridiculous that there are people in this world who want to hold back someone based on their gender. I mean, my goodness, just give me the top 10 people in the entire company. And I don't care if they're men or women, bring them on board and let's turn this thing around. Uh, it was fascinating because I, I just have never been able to completely understand this mentality of holding women back because you're really just sort of tying one arm behind your back and not allowing you to thrive. And I'm sure uh, in Hungary in the 90s, there was probably a little bit of that going on as well. Well, um, it, it could be, you know, men, women. The, the, women were always very active members of the workforce in Hungary. 
Um, now, whether or not they they had the same level of authority as men did, I, I don't know, because I was in a network for set at one time. But um, just another quick story, um, because you asked me if I ever gone to Hungary before I moved back there as an expat. I did visit a number of times, and <laughs> this was another uh, kind of funny story where I we walked into a bank, and back in those days, you didn't have computers, and so in a bank and um, my mom or my grandma, whoever was in there, they were doing some stuff and I was standing at the door. I was watching this guy who was sitting at a desk and he, I guess, became conscious of me watching him. So for the next 20 minutes, because it took about 20 minutes or half hour to do the transaction, he would just take a pile of papers from the left side, <laughs> pick them up and put them to the right side just so he looked like he was doing something. <laughs> you watched him do this? I watched him do this for like a half hour, and it, and it, but it was just testimony to, to communism. And I got 100 million stories I can tell you about communism and how corrupt it was. But there was no incentive for people to succeed or, or do a good job. Mm-hmm. So same thing with this woman. I mean, I'm sure that she's been hammered over the head. Maybe when she was young, she she had a lot of energy and a lot of ideas, enthusiasm. And and then just, you know, you knock yourself, you know, knock your forehead against the wall so many times and it starts hurting. So by the time that we made the acquisition, she was in the workforce for, you know, 20, 30 years and she was just numb. So mm-hmm. she was like, all right, well, I get a paycheck from nine to five. So I show up and if I got nothing to do, I'll sit here. And if I got something to do, then then I'll do. You just tell me what to do. I had a friend in high school who was from Germany. This is, gosh, late 80s. And he said, I remember we were, we were talking about a business and uh, we were standing there with our coach and he said, uh, if, if I want to open up, it's not like I can open up another business just like them across the street. And I remember our coach, and I, you know, I still hadn't learned completely the ins and outs of how capitalism works. You're a high school kid, you're just trying to get a good car and have the girls notice you. And I remember thinking, Knowing at least this much, yeah, you can open up a, a rival business across the street and compete. And he was blown away, you know, back then. No, you can't. That's illegal. Why would you do that? And it's like that whole mentality. All right, enough on Hungary because you've been all over the world, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's a beautiful place, Tom, and you seem like a great guy. But uh, where are some of the other places you've worked that just stand out to you uh, for so- beauty and all that you accomplished there? Well, um, look, in, in the expat environment, um, you have to accomplish because there's you basically when you put into a situation, you have about three years to succeed. So one of two things happens in three years. You either haven't turned the needle and you get fired or or you did a good job and you get promoted. Those are the two options. You know, you, you don't stay in an expat job for 10, 15 years. It's, it's a very different alignment. So you either succeed or you get axed. Those are the two options. Um, I've lived and I traveled in a lot of places. So I lived uh, in Budapest, in Prague, in Mexico City, in London, in Amsterdam. Actually, outside of Amsterdam and Den Haag. Um, I've traveled. I, you know, we had a big business to Brazil, so I was in and out of business a lot, in Brazil a lot, uh, once a month. Uh, Argentina. Obviously, I lived in Mexico, uh, Middle East. I was in Tel Aviv, Israel, you know, once a month. Um, Africa, uh, been to Hong Kong, uh, Thailand, uh, Singapore. So kind of also, like I said, all the continents I visited and worked on, but those cities are the the cities that we lived in. And I had wonderful stories in every one of them. Um, Did you ever get to a place... And you're like, this place is done. Like, there's there's no turning this thing around. No. 
And I'll tell you why. Um, it, it, again, it's, um, and we'll, you know, if you want to talk about the book in a little bit, we can do that. But um, when, I, when I look back on my life and all my successes and all my failures, um, I say, look, what are the four things that were very common um, when I was successful? And what were those things that were missing when things didn't work right, when there was failures? Um, then I looked at those same four things and I said, all right, well, is that just me? Or is, can I find examples of, of other leaders or other successful companies? Um, so I boiled them down to what I call the four keys to leadership success. Uh, and those four keys are company culture, no surprise, right? Uh, a very clear and simple vision, uh, a strategic growth plan, and a great inner circle or a great team. Uh, so if, those, if you have those four, uh, I promise that that will lead to success. And they are really, really simple concepts, but to pull them off um, is not so easy, right? Because it's human stuff that, that's, uh, that's in there. Um, don't know if that answered your no, question. No, that's great, that's good. We like to eat shows company culture first. You come back on the podcast as a result of that. Uh, Tom's book is called C-Suite and Beyond. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Tom, you started to share a story and tell us about, you know, one of the most influential things you've ever done. What is, uh, in your opinion, the, the greatest accomplishment you have, the most influential thing that you've done uh, throughout your entire career? Well, two, two answers. One is um, the most influential thing, the greatest thing I've done is the way my kids turned out. And, and by the way, I can't take 100% credit for that. My wife has a lot to do with that, right? Um, but um, I, I'm really, really, maybe not proud, but blessed is, is the better word uh, with my kids. They're just, they're wonderful. You know, they're accomplished and they're great kids. So um, that's, you know, if you're going to basically look at my legacy, that's the one you should look at, how my kids turned out. But by the way, I think that goes for every father. Um, the other thing that um, is a kind of a little story that I remember, um, another expat assignment I had was in Prague. But by the way, Prague is a gorgeous city. I mean, if you're if you ever opened those little storybooks when you were a kid with all the enchanted castles and palaces in there, that's Prague. Mm-hmm. Never, you know, unscathed in World War II. So just a beautiful enchanted city. James Bond is always there in every every single movie. <laughs> and Tom Cruise. By the way, I want to stop here and just tell you my ultimate movie fantasy is that James Bond and Ethan Hunt somehow connect in Prague and they save the world from the syndicate or the specter or whatever. We bring the great American CIA guy who's been disavowed with the great London and my six guy. That's the movie we all want, I think. Yeah. And then after they're done, they create a podcast. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they're not. I mean, that combination is not as great as, as Kyle's Navy SEALs accomplishments, but it would be <laughs> yeah, right. up there. Yeah, sure. right. Oh, I love Prague. I'll tell you, I remember when Candace and I went there back in 2009, I think. Yeah, in 2009, um, I had never had a, a, a Czech pig's knee. Oh, man. Okay, what's the, explain that for us pig's common people. Knee. Oh, well, it's well, a pig, it's literally a pig's knee. And and you can get it at several restaurants. So I would be yeah. so for the week I was basically having pig's knee every night cuz it was so good. So I feel shafted. I lived in Canada, and all we got was poutine, which is uh, French fries and gravy and cheese. Uh, Pro- Prague is, and, uh, and I'm surprised none of you guys mentioned it, Prague has the best beer in the world. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
So, you know, they have the original Budwar, and it's just, uh, that's, I I love beer, and I, I love Czech beer. It was the best beer in the world, so... Um, unfortunately, he put a couple of pounds on me, but... Unsubscribed, <laughs> August. Um, maybe we start a beer battle. So, uh, so yeah. Um, so, Prague, and uh, there I had to take over a company that was um, pretty much one of those companies where I put those four elements to, to work. And uh, we went from uh, about a $40 million company losing about, I think they were losing about two and a half or three million on, on, on a sales of 40 million. And then we went to 64 million, making over five, almost six million uh, in about two and a half years. Wow. And um, one of the nicest compliments anybody um, um, paid me was, uh, like I mentioned, after three years, you're either out or you're moving on. So on this one did well, so I was moving on. And uh, the next guy was coming in. So we had a, you know, a farewell big party. Uh, so I gave a farewell speech. And, um, and my CFO, Romana, said uh, in the speech, so she said, if, you know, she, I guess she was elected by the local company to say a few words. And um, she said, Tom, thanks, thanks for believing us, believing in us, and for helping us believe in ourselves. I, I thought that was just a best compliment anybody could give me it's pretty amazing all right let's go back just a bit we have to because there are we have a lot of people on the podcast that say hey this is what i did this is my impact that's great and they gloss over like it was just everybody can roll in and figure this out so we walk in and companies losing what'd you say 54 million dollars 40 two million losses and so like what did you do to turn it around like did you look around and say i'm here everything's better just keep doing what you're doing or did you say <laughs> you gotta go Tom's you gotta arrived. go you gotta go <laughs> So, so again, it's, it's those four keys that I talked to you about. It's no different than that. In fact, if, if you— All right, I got it. I got the four keys. I want more specifics. How did you create a great company culture? How did you put together a clear and simple vision? How did you decide whether the strategy was good or bad, and how did you change it? And how did you uh, figure out if your inner circle was going to be able to be worked with? So, so let's start with culture, right? So when I arrived in a company— uh, the guy that was the, the 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 general manager of the company was a very good sales guy. He couldn't lead his self out of a paper bag, but he was a great sales guy. So he was running around all all over the country selling stuff, right? So so I kind of arrived and I said, okay, well, what the heck is the rest of the sales force going? You know, I mean, you've got close to 100 people on your sales team. What are they doing if this one guy is selling containers full you know full full of stuff? Um, and by the way, does, does anybody know what they have to do around here? So we, we started off with something as simple as a daily sales report. And then you communicate that through the company to say, okay, well, we got 30 days. We're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to sell 5 million, you know, in these 30 days. So how's everybody contributing, right? Little things like that, right? Uh, let's look at the organization. How is our organization structured to support the changing dynamics of the trade? Multinationals are coming in. Very different than mom and pop stores that Eastern Europe was, you know, feeding through distributors, right? Um, I, I remember um, our first planning meeting. So, so what happens usually during planning meetings is 
uh, in multinationals, you start forming your your budgets and your plans, and by you do, start doing that like September, and that by November you lock them in, and then communicate them to upper management, regional management. Your budget gets approved, so you're ready to go out the gate January, and everything's approved, and you can start spending money. So, the first planning meeting, I just arrived at the company. I was only there uh, maybe a month, so we had a planning meeting and. You know, everybody was allocating funds, and I said, hey, "Time out, time out. What's a vision? <laughs> you know, we're spending eighty percent of our money on detergents. Detergents, not the division. Right? Van Kieser was a was a company, so the good news was there was a corporate vision, but it was never adapted at the local subsidiary. Right? So Van Kieser started off as a water softener company. It's a niche product." high profit margins, and and all their successful products were niche products, niche cleaners with high profit margins. And here's this company spending 80% of their resources on on a high volume, low profit detergent category. So it was like, all right, well, time out, let's, what's our vision? Oh, okay, so now that we got the vision out of the, you know, out of the way, right, what's the next step? Well. Part of your strategic growth or your three-year budget or your three-year plan has to support that vision. So guess what? On detergents, no more advertising money. It's all promotional money. It's all trade money. It's all high volume, you know, low margin. Where are you going to put the advertising? We're going to basically build niche products. So the, the great thing was Eastern Europe, it was really, really cheap to launch products at the time. It was cheaper to do an in-market test and launch a product than, than to, to try to design in the back office. So basically, you know, new brand, new storyboards, new copy, you know, new positioning, media blitz. I mean, you know, the whole nine yards. So every year we launched two major new brands and then line extensions. These were all niche. We did this over a three-year period of time. And detergents were there. How hard was it? You didn't speak Czech. No. So uh, is this all being translated? How is this working? You got English guys, they all speak English? Is it, well, multinationals at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the higher management level, multinationals only hire people that speak English. So in the factory level, yeah, then, then you have issues. Or some of the sales force, you have some issues where you have translators. But um, at the higher level, it's it's English for uh, multinational is not an issue. They don't know, you know. First of all, you attract people that's multi-language. And in Europe, most people sp- speak multiple languages. Hey, how real quick sidebar, real quick. How how um how good of a resource was that market to uh, for your guys's uh, testing? or analyzation of a, of a market compared to, to the U.S.? Like, if a product did pretty good over there, was it usually uh, received well in the U.S.? Just curious. Um, well, U.S. was a little bit more difficult because it's a, such a huge market. Sure. Um, and the, the media is... But look, I also did it in Mexico. Yeah. You know, Mexico was a huge market. And within a year, we had the number one selling premium, market, uh, premium cleaner in Mexico yeah, in one year. Um, so, um, I was just curious about, I remember in grad school, it was fascinating. I had some friends who were flying to Korea all the time from the auto industry. Cause I went to grad school at the university of Windsor outside of Detroit. 
And they were constantly, so we had a ton of people in the auto industry going to Korea and all over. They'd come back from Asia with the most incredible electronic gadgets you've ever seen. And I'm like, where'd you get that? And they're like, oh, they're all over in Asia. And uh, our professor said that America is great for pumping out ideas. America is great for investors. Uh, but and when it comes to embracing brand new technology, America is one of the worst countries to do that. So a lot of the new power tools get tested in England, but they all get vetted. Uh, pretty thoroughly outside of the U.S. And then once they've established a market, they come into the U.S. I always thought that was interesting. But look, to make a mistake in the U.S. is very expensive, mm. right? To make, an ex make a mistake in the Czech Republic is not detrimental. Right? You don't want to make the mistake, right. but it is, you know, I, I remember in, in when I worked for Colgate many, 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 many years ago, um, the, the ratio was, I, I think there was probably about uh, a thousand products that you would... Um, you know, be working on, of, of which about 100 would actually make it to test market, of which about 10 would actually get launched, and about one or two out of the 10 would succeed. So those are, you know, the kind of the ratio. So to make a mistake in the U.S. market is just too costly um, in a small market. And I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. No, but I was just curious. We, I got off topic. Sorry. All right, Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, this is, uh, Kyle, Kyle loves it when I do this to him, Tom. Um, okay, so you're a Navy SEAL. You just got handed a new team. How, how would these four things well, come into play? Well, I just I wanted to hear the rest of it. He wasn't oh, done. I want to hear. Where, where, he wasn't where, done. You never want to answer these questions. Because Tom's smarter than I think than our me. listeners, <laughs> I think oh, our I'm listeners are dying to hear from uh, Kyle. No. I want to hear the rest of where Tom was going with this because this is fascinating, right? So you're going through you're going through the vision, you're going through the strategy, you're going to your growth plan now, right? That's where we're at. Now it's the team. Yeah. So what'd you do? So um, two things with the team. One is uh, once you identify the culture and once you identify the vision, I always say that culture and vision are non-negotiable. Right? You can talk a lot about up front what your culture is going to be. You can lock, talk a lot about what your vision is going to be. But once you lock it in, it is no longer ne negotiable. So whoever's on the team has got to be on board. If they don't buy into the vision or the culture, they cannot be on the team. Right. So when you when you look at the team, you know, in my case, I, I inherited an existing team, obviously. Right. Um, I had when a time I took over, I had two sales managers. Um, I had to elevate one to sales director. Uh, one guy bought into the culture and the vision, the other guy didn't. Within three months, he was gone. He was gone, yeah. Right? Um, so that's, that's the first thing when you put a team together is to make sure that everybody's on board with the culture and vision. If they're not, um, some people will just figure out themselves and they leave. You know, I remember this uh, was a middle level of a manager, uh, probably about four months, five months after I arrived, um, he quit, as did a number of other guys. And I, I had an exit interview with him and I said, Peter, why are you quitting? He goes, well, it's just no fun around here anymore. All everybody talks about oh. is making plan. <laughs> so I was like, OK, well, the good news is I got a culture that people get. <laughs> And, and people just kind of, <laughs> exactly, just, you know, you know. so um, then regarding, you know, the team, um, you got to get people that are on that team that are motivated um, and then work as a teamwork. So, so for example, on the same, on the same budget meeting that I was telling you about, uh, Paul, who was my marketing director, um, 
he took an early initiative to have a um, a pre-budget meeting, right? So he invited me. So I said, all right, well, you know, thanks for inviting me, Paul. Congratulations. You're a great guy for getting a jump on things. Kudos to you. Um, so then, you know, I walked down the hallway and I said, uh, Romana, are you coming to that meeting? She goes, she was my CFO. She goes, what meeting? Then I said to the Peter, the sales guy, I said, Peter, you come to the meeting? And he goes, what meeting? So no teamwork, right? So I, I went back to Paul again. I said, look, I think it's great that you're doing this, but don't you think you should invite the CFO and the sales guy and, a, and your manufacturing guy? Because otherwise you've got pipe dreams. So then everybody came to the table and, um, but you, you, you have to kind of, you know, force that if I don't walk into those people's offices, then, you know, the marketing team goes off in a silo and there's nobody there to support their ideas. Uh, great companies over communicate, so, yeah, right? That's what they that's do. Right. So, so nowadays there are so many tools out there to enable leaders to understand, you know, the strengths of their team. As you were going through this, uh, you quickly realized that uh, you know one of your one of your sales sales might be a little easier to understand pretty quickly how good of a sales guy uh, one might might be or not be. But uh, for your other leaders, what did you use to identify some of their strengths, like your you know your CFO, your 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 product manager, et cetera? Like, what did you use back then to identify their strengths? So. There's a sophisticated way of doing it, and there's a you know there's a common way of doing it. I I subscribe to the common method just because I've been doing it so long. So the sophisticated way of doing it is when I was um, again with Frank Morelli, um, he basically put me through you know development when I was early days my Colgate. So I actually took the Myers and Briggs test and I took the LSI test. So um, revelation to me, thank God that those people put me through that test because. I basically wrote people off because they were not like me. So what that showed me was I can kind of put people into four buckets. Uh, one bucket is action-oriented people. The second bucket is strategic thinkers. The third bucket is analytical folks. And the fourth bucket is the, the tree, you know, the tree huggers, the, the feel good. Right, people sensing oriented people. Right now, I've used that same category regardless of the companies. You know, regardless of size. Wait, I need to add clear. I don't. I don't understand the tree hugger. What is that? The philanthropic feel good. So here's an example. Right. Um, Let Let's say we're going to basically launch a product, and it's a it's a new cleaning product. Right. Uh, I'm very action oriented. And long time ago, that's all I can think about is action-oriented, right? And that's whoever didn't see action-oriented, I didn't have any time for. So as an action-oriented individual, you're like, all right, we got to meet the deadline. You know, the deadline is September 1st. We got to get this product out September 1st. So what's all the things that we got to do to get the product out September 1st? As opposed to somebody who's analytical, they're like, well, I need more data points. You know, why are we launching this product? Is this a lot of products going to be successful? Um, you know, are we going to make a profit on it? Or, you know, what's the probabilities? You know, so they're analyzing and analyzing and analyzing. Um, or you're the tree hugger, right? You basically say, well, well, hang on a second. You know, if we launch this product, what's it going to do to the environment? 
what's going to be the consensus on the on the environment? Well, it's going to be con- you know, can people afford it? You know, whatever. Uh, and if you're a strategic thinker, you're basically saying, okay, well, is this a is this is going to be a global product? Is it going to you know? So it's a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. So what you what you find is um, when I was b- before this light went on in my head, all the guys who were strategic thinkers, to me, they were wingnuts. They were dreamers. They never, they couldn't get a day's work done because they were just like thinking about big big picture and going on to the next big idea. All the analytical people in my world were procrastinators. They just couldn't make a freaking decision. They used to drive me crazy. And, and, you know, and and it is a fact. If you basically fill a room full of analytical people, you're never going to get anything done because they're going to just analyze the crap out of everything, right? Um, versus, you know, you know, quote unquote, the, the super drivers, the tree huggers, right? They're, they're just like, oh, what's, what's the impact on the environment? What's this? What's that? So, and, and to your question, if you fill the room with like-minded individuals, you're done yeah. because you have no cross pollinization of thought. Everybody thinks the same way. So if you got a room full of action oriented guys, they're going to do the best freaking product launch in the shortest period of time, which may be a total failure. Yeah. I love it. It's like the disc <laughs> personality profile. I mean, I could totally see action oriented, the D guys. We're going to start, we're going to get things done. The tree huggers would be the S. And so the S's are what I need in my life because I am action oriented. We're going to do this, we're going to start this podcast, we're going to get going. The S's need to come along and say, hey, you hurt his feelings. Let's think about how we're doing this. I think I need those people or else it's a complete train wreck. I agree. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, if we can, and I haven't forgotten that I asked you a question and we're coming back to it, not getting off every time, but. He's looking at me. Um, He's looking at me. Uh, Tom, you got a new book coming out. It's called C-Suite and Beyond. Yep. Why, what's that title mean? Uh, what's the book about? So C-Suite and Beyond is is basically my journey on how I got to the C-Suite, right? It's from, from the day that I landed at the JFK airport in 68, you know, to my growing up as a teenager in New York, some of the stories that I went through and, and how I honed my leadership to the first job as an expat, you know, living over, you know, so many years and then finally getting to C-suite. So, I mean, yeah, my, my biggest ticket was about a $375 million company with over 2000 employees. Right. So that's in today's you know world that, yeah, I was no Jack Welsh or I was, you know, I wasn't running billions of you know dollar companies, but I think 375 million is a decent size. <laughs> but, but you didn't start there. I didn't start there. So that was, you know, it was a journey. And then beyond is because, you know, obviously I'm out of the corporate world now. Um, I do many different things. I, I coach, uh, I do workshops, I wrote this book. Um, so it's, it's, it's beyond. And, and, you know, I'm also an active member of, of the Rock Church. So those are well beyond C-suite. Oh, so like your life outside of what you do. And indeed, I love it. Um, let's just see how well you listen to your own advice, Tom. <laughs> <clears throat> Whoops, uh, Tom. In you this said, book, no, you, you said you said you, in the beginning you said no. Got your question. I feel like a guy who's flown all over the world and run organizations um, in different languages can handle a few questions like this. I'll try. Let me. Hey, I, I'm gonna take glasses off for a special effect here. Right. Uh, what are you talking about in this book? Uh, the, the objective of the book is to give everybody a roadmap to success. 
right? So again, from a, from a biased point of view for myself, I said, look, when I was failing or I was succeeding, what's the things that worked in my life and what's the things that worked for the companies that I led um, that were successful? And I boiled them down to those four, that's actually five. Um, now, the reason I wrote it is because it's a roadmap for success for others. Anybody who wants to read this book and anyone who's still bad those practices, um, I wish them you know, much success. And, and I hope that if they do follow those five or four or five key principles, they'll actually lead them to success. I believe it will. Who are you talking to? Who's this book talking to? Um, the book is talking to, um, I would say, anybody who wants to get to C-suite. So if you're a middle level manager or if you're, you know, if, if your aspiration is to be in the C-suite, and, and I guess for those folks who don't understand what C-suite is or don't know what C-suite is, in any organization, there's a CFO, there's a CIO, there's a CEO. So they call it a C-suite because those are the top leaders of the company. So anybody has an aspiration to be in C-suite uh, should read the book. That's right. Uh, what's the next step once they read the book? How can you help them? Well, if they read the book and they want to um, give me a call, um, I would love to come in and do a little workshop for them. Um, I would love to work with them and, and coach them and lead them and, and just, again, see how they can implement those, those principles. Because the, the key with these principles is they're really simple, but they're not so easy to implement. So if somebody needs my help uh, to mentor them, to work with them, I'm happy to do that. I love it. Um, uh, two things. One is easy. There are millions of people that listen to this podcast. You may get inundated with phone calls. Um, second, uh, I love the fact that you're willing to help. You know, I've often wondered, you know, sometimes business coaches get a bad rap. They're just the guy. And, and some deservedly so. They haven't really accomplished much, uh, but they want to coach and help someone else. It's like the the cook, the chef who's, who's awesome, but, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they kind of look like they're too fit to be a great chef, if that makes sense. Um, or the financial advisor who doesn't really live in a great house to drive a nice car. Uh, and, and they exist, uh, but I think they're rare. And so I always want my financial guy to kind of look the part, if you will, because it kind of justifies what they're doing. But when it comes to business coaches, you also want to have someone who's done a good job. And they're sometimes looked down on or people don't want to spend some time or even money to find the right one. And I always use this example. Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback, arguably. Um, he's got, if we define it by Super Bowl titles, he's up there for sure. Um, but he has a quarterback coach. And these baseball players are out there. Mike Trout has a, a hitting coach. And so they are at the highest level in the game, and they're still working with a coach day in and day out. What makes you think, if you're just starting, you're a mid-level guy, that you don't need any kind of coaching and you don't need any kind of guidance and you don't need to read any books and you don't need to be mentored or find someone. Uh, it's really some of the best things that's ever happened to me is spending time with people who've been successful and just asking them questions. And I think it's a certainly underused environment today. We go home, we're tired, or I don't want to have to do this extra assignment. I don't want to put in this extra stuff. Um, it just feels like a scam. I already know to do this stuff. I just don't do it. You know, it's the, the excuses we give ourselves. So. As a matter of fact, I'm a swimming instructor for Kyle some days. <laughs> lies. All lies. You will never, never <laughs> beat me in a swim race. Till the day we die. I don't even know how to answer that. I never brag on this show, but I'm going <laughs> to brag about that one thing. 
I think one of my favorite stories you told me is you were down, and you, you just feel free to jump in here when I start to butcher the details of the story. You were down uh, in Coronado, and the new Bud class was out there, and they were all in their Frogman gear, and you were in shoes and clothes. And you said, I'll challenge you to a swim. Any of you who can beat me, I'll get a case of beer for. And you took off, and you not only I, beat I them, you whipped my, them. I was, in my, I was in my gear, but I didn't have fins. Okay. I didn't have fins, and they did, but yeah. And they were I'm not going to release 19 the, and 25. The, only, and the only people that get to hear the secret to that story are Navy SEALs. <laughs> I can't release that secret. Sorry, I just can't. But, but here's the thing. I believe that story 100%. <laughs> Knowing Kyle, I'll believe that 100%. I'm, yeah, I'm, he's not getting a case of beer for anybody. That's the story. <laughs> That's the story. That's the truth. Of, oh, this has been great. All right, Tom, this is great. Kyle's got some questions we're going to wrap up with, some advice that you can share with our our. You know, our listeners, our listeners, a lot of people love hearing about what types of what types of uh, tips or tricks successful people have. So we like to call this kind of our lightning round mm -hmm. and we like to keep these kind of short, but uh, people love hearing about it, okay. especially from successful people like yourself. So are you currently reading any books? Yes, I just uh, finished. I, I don't know if you guys heard of Simon Sinek. Uh, he just came out with a book called The Infinite Game. Uh, highly recommended. Great, great book on leadership. And, and by the way, all of Simon's works is great. So, yeah. uh, Your favorite book? That's a tough one. Um, for sure, my favorite book has got to be the Bible. That's number one on the list. Um, then I'm a big John Maxwell fan. So there's a number of his books that I would highly recommend. And um, Rudy Giuliani. His leadership book from uh, New York City when as a mayor. Great book to read. Mm, I didn't see that one. You have any uh, personal daily rituals? Uh, good ones or bad ones? <laughs> <laughs> we want the good ones. Um, one of the things that uh, I think it was John Maxwell that uh, he talks about it, so I try to do is I know I'm much stronger in the morning than in the afternoon. So when I plan my day, the important stuff I put in the morning because I fade in the afternoon, uh, even after six cups of coffee. <laughs> so I just, uh, whatever's important, put it on, you know, put it on your, when you know you're strong. I love that advice. I, uh, I figured that out in college that when I was writing papers, if I wrote a paper between 1.30 and 3.30, it was great. If I wrote it first thing in the morning or late at night, it was horrible. So I've tried to structure my day. Now after 3.30, I'm like, yeah, I just start to just to kind of wean off. Uh, but figuring out what your time is and putting your most important stuff in there, that's good advice for everybody. Yeah. Personal goals for this summer or year? Uh, well, for this summer, for the year, really, you know, we're just launching this book. So I want to make the book successful. So a lot of my focus is going to be launching a book and, um, and, and make it a successful book. And then depending on how the success goes, then I start writing book, the next book. Right on. And speaking of that, uh, we'll close it out with that. Where can uh, people find out more about you? Um, well, the easiest way is just to go to my website. And it's just uh, the last name, caresti.com. Excellent. We'll have that in the notes for everybody listening as well. Or, or LinkedIn. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn also. Or just drop me an email. Just you know, pick up the phone, call me. I'm accessible. <laughs> I don't bite. Right on. Awesome. Uh, so... Very cool. This has been fantastic. 
Yeah, it's been great. My um, One of my favorite pieces uh, today was understanding the teams, the strengths, and the four buckets that he broke it down into. That's mm-hmm. been That's, been that's super great. And the way he broke down the action-oriented strategic thinkers, analytical data crunchers, and tree huggers. Can we say that today? I feel like we're we're moving beyond. Well, Tom can say yeah, it. Tom, Tom can say I'm, it. I'm not politically correct, so I, <laughs> I speak my mind for right or for, you know, for better or for worse. So. Hey, Tom, thank you for joining us. Thanks for making time. Uh, you're such a great uh, and thoughtful person. Uh, you, you answered all our questions truthfully and honestly. We appreciate that. And most of all, we can tell you just care. Uh, I'm excited to read your book. I'm excited for everybody out there to get this book. Um, it sounds like what it, everyone needs is that specific steps. Hey, here's not just all I accomplished, but here are the specific steps I took to get the C-suite to notice me, to, to step into the C-suite and leadership, and then to thrive once I was there. So thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kyle, for being here. And we look forward to hearing from you guys and uh, talking to you next week. We have Tom back on season two. For sure, yeah. For sure, for sure. We have a lot more to talk about. Have a good week, everybody. You too. All right, thank you. Take care. Trying to, trying to find my way home